So last week I talked about Christian discipleship, and I read this list to you, the five ways of being a disciple, one who keeps the Sabbath and commits to attending worship uh, every Sunday, one who witnesses to an intentional faith as modeled in the baptismal covenant, one who seeks to honor the tithe as the biblical standard of faithful giving to the church, one who uses her or his spiritual gifts in the work of the upbuilding of the church, and finally, one who reaches out to others with the love of Christ. And I read this again because there's going to be a good capsule statement of this that I'm going to read to you from the Book of Common Prayer in a couple of minutes. But I want to preach today on the reading from 2 Corinthians, where Paul is speaking about a couple of things, and one of them is stewardship. So here in the middle of, Ju- of, of or end of June, beginning of July, we can say a quick word about this before we'll get into it in earnest in the fall. And uh, what he says about it is very good and it has applications, a wide application. And then I want to say a word about the healing stories in Mark's gospel and how we might understand them and what they're pointing to as well. Because, you know, when Jesus performed healings uh, or mighty works, actually in the Greek I think the healings are called whatever, works of power is what they, that's what the translation is. So I want to say something about these healing stories and again how they might have application. Uh, some biblical scholars actually believe that First and Second Corinthians, particularly Second Corinthians, is more than one letter originally, and that it's been put together in a more in a compact form as First Corinthians and Second Corinthians, because Paul deals in Second Corinthians with a number of questions uh, that come up. So today he is focused on uh, a defense of his apostleship and on stewardship uh, and its importance in the context that he's speaking about in, in the situation on the ground. I say this all the time. The Corinthian congregation was a church that was on the bleeding edge of the dysfunctional church movement. It was a biblical example of what we find today in church life, which is herding cats, right? A situation that has always been with us, so we can take at least some heart in the fact that it isn't something that occurred a long time ago only or only now. It's part of maybe the human condition moving in a direction. So Paul uh, is concerned about this. In his absence, there are some people who have showed up in Corinth and they have, been, uh, they have been very clear about the fact that Paul may have told them that, the Christian, uh, that being a Christian involves certain things and uh, is, means certain things. And they said, don't listen to him. Here's what it means. And next week we're going to hear in 2 Corinthians about spiritual or mystical experience. So I'm going to say something about that next week. Uh, and some people believe that mystical experiences are the sine qua non, the, the necessary thing for uh, being, you know, connected. So we'll need to talk about this. 
But Paul is speaking about uh, who he is and why uh, he believes that the message that he has is compelling. And uh, he is speaking to the Corinthian congregation about that. So here's the deal. Paul is writing to them about something that had been pledged before, and that is that uh, they had agreed to uh, financially support the church in Jerusalem. The congregation, or the church that Paul founded that perhaps is the most healthy and has been the most generous is the Philippians, and he compliments them in his epistle about that. So today he is working uh, with them about the importance of their pledging, about the, the, the need for generosity, and so forth. I looked up in the Book of Common Prayer uh, something that it may be important in the Catechism. What is the duty of all Christians? The duty of all Christians is to follow Christ, to come together week by week for corporate worship, and to work, pray, and give for the spread of the kingdom of God. So in the catechism, that's what you get. It's a little compact statement. And it may be a good way to check each of us to see whether and how we're doing with regard to that. So here, let me read again to you uh, part of what the, the epistle from today. And in this matter, I am giving my advice. Notice that he says my advice. He says that in more than one place. He's not telling them what to do. He's suggesting, which is probably a good plan when you help people to suggest as opposed to say, here's what you do. You do these things. And in this matter, I am giving my advice. It is appropriate for you who began last year not only to do something, but even desire to do something. Now finish doing it so that your eagerness may be matched by completing it according to your means. For if the eagerness is there, the gift is acceptable according to what one has, not according to what one does not have. I do not mean that there should be relief for others and pressure on you, but it is a question of a fair balance between your present abundance and their need so that their abundance may be for your need, in order that there may be a fair balance. As it is written, the one who had much did not have too much, and the one who had little did not have too little. If I were king for a day, I would like that to be the public policy of the government of the United States. You know? There's a way in which we can match our abundance to other people's need. Now, if you want to get off the way you use your resources and uh, think, oh, well, here we go, uh, we also have resources, each one of us, uh, an abundance. We don't recognize them always. And we have an abundance of resources that we can match to other people's needs. And maybe one of the ways that I'm speaking about this is emotionally. That you're able in some way to uh, not uh, use other people emotionally, but to uh, impart to others 
your emotional strength at times when theirs is waning. So figuring out a way to do that is is part of the stewardship of our human resources internally, our emotional, spiritual, and mental states. What do we do uh, about how, how we do that? Uh, I'm not so sure. The Jerusalem church appears to be on its uppers in this particular, uh, in these passages. And I certainly know that it was on its uppers after the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem in 70 AD. In fact, a lot of the Christians fled the city. So the the Christian community in Jerusalem enjoyed a certain amount of cachet and prestige, but there weren't a lot of people there and their resources were uh, substantially diminished, you know. And Paul, I think, has given the Jerusalem church an undertaking that he would assist them. So elsewhere, we're going to see that we're going to see that mentioned, and that it's important. But for our purposes, figuring out ways to match our abundance with other people's need uh, is a great way of being faithful at all levels of human endeavor. You know, to reach out in love and concern for other people. So today we read in Mark's gospel two healing stories. Uh, As it goes, probably, obviously, they were put together editorially because they're discrete tales that have gone on about Jesus' healings. And the first one is Jesus is there with the crowds, got on the boat, They're, they're big crowds. I saw a YouTube video a long time ago now where someone was standing in, a, in the, a location that's mentioned in the Bible where Jesus would have been speaking by the shore. And there were all these... So the question is, well, how big were these crowds? You know, there's some people... The fundamental view is, well, there must have been a huge amount of crowds. Well, there very well may have been. And in this place... If you stand there in this particular place, you don't need any amplification. You can be heard. Big groups of people can be heard speaking. So it's just an interesting thing to see that. In any case, he was speaking and he was approached by a leader of the local synagogue named Jarius. And he came up to him and he said, my daughter is very sick and dying. Would you come? So he goes. And as he's going, there's a woman in the throng who has had a hemorrhaging uh, for a long, long time, chronic hemorrhaging of blood. And it says that she had gone to many doctors and exhausted her financial resources, but she received no relief. Does that sound familiar? Right? You know, what goes around comes around. It's part of how things are, too, you know. You know, I'm coming to the conclusion more and more to look back at the time of the writing of the New Testament as, oh, well, that was then, and now we know so much more, and we have, this is the case, and science has intervened here, and we know what we're going to do. I don't, just simply not true, really. You know, it is true that we have tools now that we're not present and we have ways of understanding that we're not ways of understanding, for sure. 
But it's interesting because the, sto the stories are somewhat similar and they resonate uh, even now. So she, she's convinced herself that if she touches his clothes, she will be healed. And she does this in the crowd, and she's healed. So Jesus, it says, felt the power go out of him. And he says to his disciples, who touched me? And they're saying, We're, you're being you're pushing and toing and froing in this crowd. You're being jostled and you're asking, who touched you? But somehow he realized that uh, something had occurred there. Now, to me, then he goes to see Jairus' daughter. Um, I read a, a thing in a biblical commentary about this. Uh, the... Uh, a cynical interpretation, in my view, of this situation. Uh, the story of the woman with the hemorrhage was inserted in the middle of the story of Jairus's daughter. Some have said that the story of the woman with the hemorrhage is inserted as a device to ensure that Jairus's daughter would get worse and die when Jesus was on his way, such that he then could bring her back to life. So, anyhow, you can believe that if you want. So he goes into the house and sees there everybody's, you know, I think a typical Middle Eastern scene is, is, is going on. So he goes in there and he, uh, they, the, some people say, she's already dead. You know, don't bother. But he goes in the house with the sort of the, some of the insiders of the apostles, James, John goes in and uh, he heals her. She gets up. She's 12 years old. She starts walking around and he said, uh, give her something to eat. I thought, well, that may be the, the problem from the jump. You know, she was <laughs> passed out. And uh, so they gave her something to eat. You know, there's a saying in some circles, halt, never get too hungry, too angry. Too lonely or too tired? Not bad advice. Suggestions? So she's healed. Now, what's the point? Remember when we heard about the parables, we said we need to know what Jesus had in mind or at the Jesus level what it meant when he spoke it. Well, the same is true with the healings when he did these works of power. What did the community, some of, which, of whom or which were eyewitnesses, how have they interpreted it in the, er, the early community after that who were not? How have they interpreted its usefulness? And then the third thing is how do we find this useful? So the big story, in my opinion here, is this. Jesus the, healed the woman who had the hemorrhage of blood, who up until then was a pariah. If you have uh, a, a chronic issue of blood in that world, you are unclean. So her alienation was global. Global. 
and it was removed from her. And it's also true that if the little girl was dead, a corpse is unclean. And a pious Jew would not hang around corpses other than to do the to do the rituals that are necessary for burial, but they are unclean. You'd have to go through a process, and I would guess that the people who handle the corpse would have to go some through some rite of purification after they did that. So Reginald Fuller, my one of my favorites from the 20th century, a New Testament scholar, uh, said in the in this he says. Um, this is a, these are stories about how God moves out beyond the confines of what could be understood as his own law to seek and, and heal the lost. God said that people who are, have a chronic issue of blood are unclean and you shouldn't associate with them. God said corpses are unclean and you shouldn't hang around them. So Jesus ignored this. And so if it has any usefulness for us, it seems to me that uh, it's, we, we can understand that there are, are occasions when those things that we believe are godly behavior uh, may not be so rigid that we cannot move beyond them. Right? I mean, in my lifetime, I've seen things happen in this culture which I, were, were unimaginable to me uh, when I was young. Nancy and I were sitting in a rectory of a, a church in London when we'd switched parishes in 1989, watching the TV as the Berlin Wall came down. I thought to myself, I would never see this, you know? I was, you know, 43. I never thought I would see it, or I wasn't 40. Yes, I was. So, here we see the wall come down. And here we see many, many other things. And it seems to me that we have some biblical warrant for understanding that uh, uh, some of the things... Well, let me put it this way. I get worried, nervous, and anxious about the fact that people sit so lightly on the doctrines of the church. I think they're important. And yet at the same time, I think it's okay to sit fairly lightly on them. So I don't believe that the Episcopal Church needs to have a checklist whereby everybody checks the same boxes. If you have trouble with the Holy Trinity, I'm sorry. But there is your post-mortem bliss is not in jeopardy if you wish to stand at some critical distance from the belief in the Trinity. This is what the tradition with a capital T has said, how God operates internally, right? If you can't understand it or don't believe it, we won't sweat the details, right? So it's another version of, of what I tell you over and over again about somebody coming to Mass and saying, well, I don't think, I don't believe, or I'm not sure about whether Jesus is is present in the bread and the wine. Don't worry about it. Right? And, more to the point, if you feel better, that's the thing. <coughs> OK? 
because you're going to be available to people when you feel better. It's important. So the lessons that we learn is these two things to think about. How are you situated to match your abundance to other people's needs? That's true in uh, the giving of your, of your time and your talent and your treasure. This isn't just about raising money. It's about how people's, uh, everybody has gifts. And how do you use them? And use the abundant gifts that you have to match somebody else's need in some way, you know? I'm not talking, by the way, about taking on people as projects. This is a besetting difficulty in church life. We don't need to do that, and it's probably not good for the person offering uh, the pro- uh, to assist in the project as it is for the person who's receiving it. But what I am talking about is, is that it's important that we find the ways to do these kinds of supports emotionally, mentally, physically. It's a good thing. So Paul encourages this, and the line that I like too, um, not only to do something, but even desire to do something. You know, something though that's healthier. I used to have a sign in my office on the bulletin board. I don't know what happened to it, but it's gratefully, procrastination is the the, uh, simultaneous realignment of my priorities. (laughs) Spontaneous realignment of my priorities, right? So that's not what I mean. It means that we desire to do something. So that's the first step, and then maybe you, you, do, you do something. And then to think about uh, how in the way in which Christian people function in the wider society that we uh, don't start with the checklist, but we start with uh, the abundance that we have about God's unconditional love, acceptance, and forgiveness. Uh, that's not something that we can add or subtract to. It's just there. And so that equips all of us to be able to be God's people in the world. Amen.